Welcome to episode six of Sperm the Nation World. I'm your host, Adam Hooper. Throughout time, there has been many famous love stories. Romeo and Juliet, Cleopatra, Matt Hartney, and then everyone loves a fairy tale, Beauty and the Beast, Jack and Rose from the Titanic. In today's episode, we have another fantastic love story to add to that mix. Welcome to the show, Jessica Chair. Thank you. So uh, this story was many years in the making, per se, and it's fair to suggest that it's had its own twists and turns for it to eventuate and form to place. Would you like to share with us today where, where it all started from the very beginning? Because, I mean, it's a big story. It's spanned over, um, you know, over a decade. It, it is a big story. And, you know, all of the sort of sound bites of it are really confusing. So I think it's important to start at the beginning. When I was a grad student, when I was 23 years old, I was in a lesbian relationship and my girlfriend at the time and I would talk all the time about how we were going to have children and how we were going to raise a family together. And at the time it was really difficult for us to wrap our heads around how we were going to do that and what we would look like as parents. Would we be embraced by our own families? How would we be a family to that child? And it was pretty new back then. It seems a little silly in 2019 because there are so many more role models out there. But we spent a lot of time thinking about how we were going to have our family. And we eventually decided that uh, we would use an anonymous sperm donor. And I would carry the first baby because I was going to write a dissertation. So I had this chunk of time where I was done doing classwork. I was done teaching classes. I was just going to stay home and write for a year. So that seems like a good time to try to get pregnant and start our family and then later be on the job market, you know, not pregnant. <laughs> it's, been, it's, it's been over a decade now, but it does seem like an eternity how perception has changed over time of acceptance of lesbian and same-sex people having, having children. These days people don't blink an eyelid. But back then you were a pioneer, so it was a massive step for you to take. And obviously now we look back and it as, was, was a Alice is a beautiful young lady, so it was a wonderful step that you did make. How, how, how was the responses um, around your general circle when you first came out and said, hey, we're going to go down this path? When we first decided that we were going to have children, people had already had to warm up to the idea that we were a lesbian couple and they were going to treat us like that. Gosh darn it. So we had softened them up a little bit by that point. And I think that what was sort of heartwarming to me back then was that even my sort of Midwestern Victorian family that had no experience with gay people at all, as soon as you introduce this cute little baby into it and you say, we're going to have a cute little baby for you to play with, they were all just like, okay, great. I mean, really embraced it. I remember uh, after we were about 12 weeks pregnant, we were going to tell everyone that we were pregnant and we're going to tell my grandparents and you know, my 80 year old Ohio and grandpa just immediately goes, so you, you got artificial inseminated, did you? And he was really, it wasn't even judgmental. It was really curious. Like, how does this work? And my grandma goes, Oh, June. Oh, you're doing June. Like, like perfect. Um, and so it really was like a, a 
moment in time where people were having to consider that they were becoming more open to it. And as long as there was something adorable for them to love, that almost smoothed the path of being gay in the first place. Um, my partner's family really embraced the pregnancy and, you know, the children that we were going to have together didn't blink that they weren't biologically related to them. At the time, they were just like, great, grandbabies, more grandbabies. And I think it really helped legitimate our relationship to them if they had any reservations back then. Yeah, look, I think it's wonderful. I mean, I think sometimes people have that fear of how family and, and friends will you know, respond to it and we, we actually think that it could be the worst. But uh, in general, uh, it's not the case. It is a very warming and uh, welcoming vibe that uh, you do get to experience. So that's just lovely. So we'll go into it, uh, the process of uh, the home delivery, of using these canister kits that they deliver. You know, how did you evaluate whether or not to go to clinic or to have this delivered and, and how does that all work? Um, I don't, in Australia, we don't get that delivered to us. So, you know, it's an initial perception and obviously we've got viewers across the world that may be wanting to try this as well. So could you touch on, on that and how was the experience of all that? And is it, you know, is it nerve-wracking pulling out a frozen nit- nitrate, nit- um, as- um, what's it called, the... <laughs> it's, it's, it's huge. It's like a liquid nitrogen tank. Yeah, that's right. um, yeah it's, it's very scary, but it's also very fun. It's like a science experiment. So, you know, what happened was there was one bank in the United States at that time that would deliver to your home without a doctor sign off. And in the United States, insurance typically does not pay for fertility treatments. It's not a medical necessity. So it's something that would be out of pocket anyway and incredibly expensive. And we just thought, you know, we don't have fertility problems. We don't need fertility treatment. Why would we go and get someone to sign off on this? This is not rocket science. (laughs) So we went with the bank that would deliver to your home and picked out a donor. And what we did was they, they sent it to you, FedEx. So you have about seven days with it. So you... You can basically order it the day you do an ovulation kit and you know it's going to be there the next day. You know you're going to want to inseminate the next day. You have a second vial for 12 or 24 or 36 hours later. And then you just put it back out on your porch and FedEx takes it back with the return label. (laughs) And, you know, we had a good experience with that. We had a sort of false alarm that we thought we were pregnant one month. But by the sixth month, We just said, you know, this is actually getting kind of expensive and getting kind of emotionally difficult when you're on that like two-week roller coaster of trying to get pregnant, realizing you're not, ordering new sperm, trying to get pregnant. And we felt like we were doing everything right, but we did approach my OBGYN, just not even a fertility specialist, and said, hey, would you be willing to do an IUI insemination in your office, an interuterine insemination? We don't know that we're ready to do fertility treatments. We don't know that we're ready to do pills. We don't know that there's anything wrong. We would just like to up our chances because this is sort of emotionally taxing and getting expensive. And he listened to everything we were doing with our at-home science experiment and was just like, whoa, why aren't you pregnant? I'm willing to do this, but I'm only willing to do this one month because it certainly sounds like you know what you're doing (laughs) and you should be pregnant by now. A lot of people that do look at this same insemination or do-it-yourself option, 
people find, you know, oh, it's a bit like a bit daunting, you know, how do I do it? But I mean, yeah, you're right. When you actually look into it, it isn't rocket science. Basically timing and, and the rest is pretty simple. If you're not medically infertile, you don't you don't really need to go to a clinic or pump yourself full of hormones or drugs and stuff like that either. So, you know, back in 2005, you probably wouldn't have had that online option as that wasn't really developed either. So this was probably one of the good good options available to you back then. So, no, it was, sorry. Yeah, no. it was really nice that it was there. And what happened to us was when we went to the doctor, he said, well, would you be willing to use this sperm bank that I'm already registered with? They will ship it right to my office. And that's when we actually chose Aaron as a donor because we had never been pregnant. We weren't committed to any particular donor. And we said, yes, sure. Uh, we had two vials sent that month. We did one in the office and we took one home for later because I was very committed to my timing. I had this math down that I was really not going to do a month. You know, frozen sperm does not live as long as fresh sperm. And I didn't want to, you know, spend time and money and heartache on a month and not have that entire window covered. That was really important to me. So we did it at home and we did it in the office. And we ended up with that donor just by chance, just because that last month when we did get pregnant, my OBGYN had said, would you be willing to try this different bank? We'll talk about actually um, picking Aaron as well, how you, how you came about picking Aaron. I mean, uh, I've seen stories out there that Aaron was in the cheap section. Aaron <laughs> was cheap sperm. Um, yeah. Did and they Aaron didn't know that until I told him and he was really offended. And I said, well, they call it, they call it like family solutions because it's supposedly people with less information on them. They had been in the program less time. Yeah. So that might be a donor that didn't have like a voice recording. And my partner and I were just like, you know what? We don't, what, the voice recording didn't seem genetic to us. It didn't seem like those extra bells and whistles were not something we were interested in anyway so was was Aaron being lazy here I mean he lived two blocks away from the store I'm sure he could have done a recording <laughs> I I don't know I think it might have been the timing because he was there 10 years before we were trying and yeah. so I think at the time they just didn't ask him for those things and you know nowadays if you go to the sperm bank catalogs there are baby pictures teenage pictures adult pictures you know mm. astrological charts every little hoo-ha that you could possibly want about this person and it's a much more robust profile that I think is more consumer driven but at the time there wasn't that much information on each donor and we were really only concerned with the things that seemed genetic to us. Like that at-home sperm bank that we used was located in a logging town in the Pacific Northwest. And it was a college town. And every one of those donors put down for hobbies, you know, like hunting, fishing. <laughs> <laughs> and my partner and I kind of looked at each other and laughed. And we're like, I don't think this is genetic. I think this is just, of course, they chose that college in this place that has a lot of hunting and fishing. <laughs> uh, we don't think we're, you know, in danger of having a little hunter. So a lot of that extra information to us wasn't important. Ah, so, so do you go hunting now as a family? 
we don't go hunting as a family. <laughs> Actually, everyone's incredibly progressive. So <laughs> I don't know. I can't speak to whether or not that would have been genetic. Yeah, very cool, very cool. So um, look, we'll t- touch on um, actually the age of the donor because obviously we've found out a lot now since that obviously when you went there you, you didn't really know the age, you just presumed the age, but you didn't know that when you were going to have Alice that these vials have been sitting there over a decade themselves already. So I mean, really, Alice is you know, two decades in the making. Really, <laughs> that was a complete surprise to me. I don't know why I just assumed that you know that would be used. I, I don't know within a year or two of when it was donated, but that's not the case. If you donate for a year, you might have stored up you know four hundred different vials. You know, and someone could come along and have a baby with it and then buy the rest of it because they want more later. But it didn't even occur to me that this had been sitting there since I was graduating from high school. When you went and used his sperm, did they say that they had, you know, obviously enough left for future siblings for you? Or did you have to book that extra one in advance? Or We didn't ask at all. And in retrospect, that would have been smart. What you can do is you can, you can buy it all and it will not leave the facility. So let's say you have a child with this donor and you decide, you know, give me everything else you've got. You pay for it. It stays at the cryobank. And let's say the next time you try, you are using fertility treatments. You immediately get pregnant. You have triplets. Like your family's done you can then sell the rest back because it's never left the facility. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So it's, it's presumably like it's possible that that sperm that you're interested in disappears from the catalog and then reappears a few years later. So you're never quite sure how much there is left. So, so Alice could be potentially 60 to 70 years old and she could have a younger half-sibling <laughs> if, it, if it gets passed back. Is that, is that, you know, is that could be the case? She absolutely could. I Last summer when we were talking about how many siblings there were, I called up the sperm bank and I was like, well, I'm, I'm the one to do this. I'm the mom. And I called them up and I was like, hi, I've had two children reported pregnancies from this donor. How much do you have left? I want to know everything you've got. And they said, we have one vial left. And I didn't buy it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, you've got on tap now. But I think it may, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of thought to myself, well, this is going to stay there forever. Because I remember when I was getting pregnant, there was no way you would use one vial even in one month. You know, let alone commit yourself to a donor. You've got one go at it. And the next month, you're going to have to choose someone new. I don't feel like anyone's buying that vial. I think that might just sit there forever. But... I don't know how many vials there were two years ago or three or five. It's amazing because, I mean, you, you don't know if Alice is the youngest. I mean, um, I've seen a couple of videos now that you guys have contributed and put out there and Bryce and Maddie uh, seem to be the older ones. We know from the time of donating that Bryce and Maddie probably are about the oldest. Yeah. That we could have. But we could have someone pregnant right now. We don't know. We do know that there are 10 siblings total right now and the youngest are i think they're seven-year-old twins they're in first grade 
you know this from DNA testing? Is is that the how all the all ten of you are connected at the moment, or how how, how did you how's that link being distinguished? For the most part, the donor sibling registry. Okay, about, yeah. About ninety percent of the siblings that we found have come through there. And they're using Aaron's donor code or ID number to to link up. Is that be the way that they do it on that system? Yes, absolutely. How did the DNA testing idea come apart and, you know, the steps that you took to do this? And, you know, obviously it's sort of like it's a, it's a big decision because you're, you're essentially opening a can of worms. So we were is- a, a little naive about that, I think, because it didn't occur to me, again, that Aaron would be there or that even really siblings would be there. And if the siblings were there, that's great. We've been able to see a couple of them on donor sibling registry and it just... I mean, honestly, this is hard to explain to people who aren't in this community. You know, even a few years ago, those donor sibling registry connections, it was like handshake, email, here's a picture, bye-bye. People weren't as open to having relationships with them. And it didn't even occur to us how many people were on the DNA testing kits database. And it was actually a shock when we did the test and Aaron came back first thing. 50% DNA and there's a donor there because I just didn't know it was that large or that widely used. So it's getting there. It's really difficult, I think, these days to not be able to find a lot of biological family on those DNA sites, if not a donor himself who wants to be found. Did did Bryce appear up on that search as well when you registered? Was that the same one? Yes, Bryce came up right away. Bryce, you know, it was really funny. Bryce had done the test in like October. Aaron had done the test in November. We got the test for Christmas and and got (laughs) the results back in February. So it was all of us really, really close to each other. And Bryce had been the one who, you know, I call him the John boy of the family. You know, that show, the Waltons. It's a big farm family. And John Boy, he manages the kids. And he says goodnight to all the other kids every night and sort of, you know, wrangles them. And Bryce is the John Boy. Bryce had been on donor sibling registry. He'd talked to every mom. (laughs) He'd talked if they were minors. And and he had been a little disappointed because he found that he was the eldest. And there really weren't sibling connections that he could have made up until the point where he found Maddie and Aaron. You know, he had just talked to a couple of moms of nine-year-olds and didn't really think that there were relationships there, you know, at least for another 10 years or so till those kids grew up. And then all of a sudden, we all just had the same idea at the same time and did this DNA test. And so Aaron and Bryce were there, but Bryce really connected us to everyone else. So who was the first person you spoke to? Was it was it Bryce or was it Aaron? Because, I mean, you're on there looking at it. I would even have to go and look at the timestamps on those messages because I sent a message to both of them and I was really terrified. This was the scariest part of this whole story is my mom had done the DNA test before and she said, you know, yeah, they tell you when you have new relatives there. She didn't tell me there was just a monthly email that says, go check out your new relatives. (laughs) So I was under the impression that, you know, they'd gotten some email that's like, warning, warning, close family here right now, not writing to you. So I was really concerned that they had seen us. 
on the site that they weren't writing us, we weren't writing them. It was now awkward. <laughs> we were now having our first awkward family reunion situation. Um, and because I was the parent, because clearly my kid has a little avatar that looks like a little kid, you know, I didn't think many grown men were going to write to someone else's little kid unsolicited. So I really thought the ball's in my court here. I have to reach out to him and to Bryce too. And I wrote a really similar note that was, you know, we're here. I've got another kiddo with his same donor and we're available if you want to see pictures or if you ever want to share, you know, anything about your life, we're available. When you use a donor, you're picking a different path. And I think society tries to dictate that, you know, you're in a, you're in a nuclear family and this is your family unit and, you know, that's it and that's it. And I think people that have donor children as well, donor children as well they like to think, oh, we're going to raise these children up as ours and, we, you know, don't we, or we may not want them to have anything to do with the other uh, siblings because we personally believe that, you know, DNA isn't um, essential and stuff like that. And sometimes they can get their own feelings and philosophies focused in, in one direction, whereas the child might have another idea once they come, become older. So it's all about facilitating both and embracing this unique situation. It's a unique life that Alice, Alice and her siblings, half-siblings have together. It's, it's not a, a story to be ashamed of or be not want to talk about. It, it's actually positive positivity that it can influence on, on these children's life is probably actually greater than your than your, your traditional nuclear family. And I think it's still sort of we're breaking away, breaking away with this now in 2019 where we're getting that modern family where everyone's becoming more accepting and, and, and embracing, you know, all these uh, extended relationships that they form. And as a, a mother to a child of this, and obviously you've adopted in many retrospects these other children in some way or form of, you know, accepting them into your inner circle as well. Do you see it's beneficial for these children to have these relationships? Oh, absolutely. And we've had both in this family, people who are really committed to DNA being meaningful to them in their lives and people who are really resistant to meeting people just because they share DNA. But I think that socially, like we've had so many experiences leading up to now, you know, we've kind of found out that those closed anonymous adoptions of the 50s and 60s didn't help those kids out very much at all. And we've gotten a little bit more open to, you know, maybe people exploring who they are and where they come from isn't such a threat. And I think that, you know, those families in which you're raised are so significant and important and sure that's your quote real family but if dna is totally unimportant like treat it like it's not important don't treat it like this is the biggest threat that could ever happen we're not going to be open at all ever um you're building these people up into this huge figures in each other's lives and what we've found is that just sort of being open to whatever relationships you know, especially my kid as, as being 12, 13 at the time, whatever she's ready for and open for and wanting from these adults in her life and these other siblings, especially the grown ones, has been a really healthy process. And pretending it's not there and pretending they're unimportant, I think would have been, you know, more me dictating 
what she needs and, and who she is. And I think that it's up to her what she needs and who she is and, and how far she wants to take this. I really noticed that when we met the older kids, they were what, 20 and 21 at the time, they were very much like, who am I? Where do I come from? My kid was not at all at that stage yet. When we met, my kid could have you know, taken or left Erin. It was not a big deal to her. Still, she would tell you, I don't know why everyone finds this fascinating. This is no big deal. He's cool. And I think she's even told people, she's like, well, Erin's chill, but you know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) She still knows who she is as a, as a confident kid. But as she grows up, I don't want to be the one that's responsible for keeping more information about who she is from her. And that's why we did the DNA test in the first place. She didn't think a donor would be there. She wasn't looking to find a donor. She wanted to know what countries were there in her ancestry. And and what countries are you from? Oh, lots of them. Um, You know, it turns out she had always wanted to be (laughs) (laughs) African-American. And so when my, my mom, her grandma, had done the DNA test and was really big on telling us where we were from, But my mom was a single mom, and I don't know who my dad is. I've never known that family. And finally, Alice just, like, threw in the towel and was like, you know what, Grandma? Like, I'm 75% unknown, and I want to know what that is. All this stuff you're telling me about who I am is is mostly not who I am, actually. (laughs) And so she wanted to see those countries, and she was super gung-ho that she was going to be African-American. And it turns out that Erin is, like, a Swedish Viking, and it's just very, very white, Um, So she was actually initially disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Um, But we saw saw it coming with the blonde hair and blue eyes, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I can't say that I was was going to be a bit surprised if there was a percentage of African-American in there. But, I mean, bless her, um, you know, wishing that. (laughs) (laughs) Alice, you know, has been uh, introduced to these other half-siblings, but, I mean, she's lost one along the way. Can you touch on that and what happened there and... Sure. After we had Alice, the donor became much more important to us, my ex and I, as a family, because I think any parent has this, you know, reaction. The first baby comes out and you're like, it's perfect. It's the most perfect thing that's ever happened. Let's replicate it. And my ex was going to carry the next baby and we got pregnant really soon after. We started trying again when Alice was six months old. And we were pregnant when she was nine months old. She has a sister by Erin, is the donor, who is 18 months younger than her. And those girls grew up together for a decade. And what happened was her birth mom decided to cut Alice out of her life. And we had been apart for a number of years. I had the girls five days a week. She had the girls Sunday, Monday nights. She's a bartender, so those are the dead days at restaurants. She had them Sunday, Mondays, was the weekend. And they were never apart. They moved between houses together for a number of years. And I had had Alice during a trip, and she had had my youngest. And I certainly didn't think anything could happen custody-wise, because I've got one of the kids. (laughs) What are you going to do here? But she cut that kid out. And, you know, very, very gradually, she stopped responding to me on text. We texted every day about the kids, stopped responding to me about things about the kids. 
So she would respond to like business requests and things like that. Like I had a camper parked in her driveway. She would respond to that. Mm-hmm. But gradually she pulled communication with Alice. She wouldn't text Alice. She wouldn't communicate with Alice. And she stopped communicating with me. And I realized what was happening here and that really this kid was being isolated to such an extent that she couldn't communicate with me anymore. She couldn't communicate with her sister anymore. She couldn't communicate with cousin Laura and all the aunts and uncles and grandparents anymore. And she's really being held and she's being held in a place where she has seen this mom willing to cut you out if you're not good and loyal enough. Right? So in some ways she's in a much worse situation than Alex. Alice has lost her mom, (laughs) just disowned her. She's lost her sister, but at least she wakes up every day knowing that I've got her back and I'm not going anywhere ever. And that we are never forgetting her sister ever. We talk about her sister every day, but we're not able to reach her sister because it's incredibly complicated in the U.S. with uh, lesbian and gay parenting issues. And we may not be able to contact her sister I'm still obviously the parent of that kiddo and I will be forever. So I'm looking at it, you know, if we can't ever get to her, if we can't ever tell her that we love her and, you know, that we're supporting her in this situation, that's only the next six years. She's 12 and Alice is 13. This kid's going to live to what? 85. So, you know, as a parent, I'm looking at it for, you know, what can I do for the next 70 years? And what can we do as a family to let her know that we're not going anywhere? She will always have our support. And to sort of get her out of all of these things that have happened to her and and really parent her into an adult who can trust again and and love again and have healthy relationships. Because at, at some point, she will learn what's going on if she doesn't know already. You know, and she will start to sort of critically think about it for herself and, and what's happening here. You know, we, we can't be sure what her mom is telling her, but it's super scary to think about. And I, and I think she's going to, the ex-partner that you've had, I think she's going to be caught out with this because, I mean, you, you've, you've become very um, open and honest about your feelings and story. And, you know, this, this here today, this recording, it will last more than 85 years, more than our lifetimes. It will be still floating around. And, you know, she's, what, she 10 years old now? Is, is that around that age? No, little is 12. My, uh, my youngest yeah. is in sixth grade. And, right, and I, I would love to be very open and honest about this because I think anyone who, number one, is considering this way of making a family needs to work even harder than, than we worked. And we worked darn hard to figure out how to protect our family, and we couldn't. You know, and number two, I... I only have the truth. I'm very confident. <laughs> I'm not leaving parts of this story out. It's not two-sided here. It's, it's horrific that the girls have been kept apart like this. And it, it's not what any of us meant when we were forming a family this way. And who knows what message is being delivered to you, this half-sibling, to justify. Hey, you Mom. have to come up with something, and that's the scary part. Yeah, because and how are we gonna un- how are we gonna undo that? And and what happens when this kid finds out the truth? I don't want to undermine her relationship with her mama. I'm mommy. She's mama. You know, but at some point, she it's it's going to dawn on her 
that this has all been a lie to some extent, right? Mm. There'd have to be some justification for this. And then, then how do you ever trust again? This is the person who cares for her 24 hours a day, who's been mm. saying that they're protecting you. And she's going to find that there's a whole family here. She's going to find that, you know, not only do we have a, a dad here, but we've got a grandma who doesn't have a lot of years left. She's got advanced Alzheimer's right now. My youngest is probably not going to get to know her because of what her mama's doing. Right now, the longer that your ex-partner leaves this, the more, more bigger of an issue can come. You know, right now at her age now, it, it could be, you know, it could be sorted out and smoothed over. Uh, it's, it's staggering uh, these decisions that some people do make that are out of our own control and, you know, all we can do is talk about it and, and put our love out there and, you know, say the door is always open for her. And, you know, she will probably listen to this back in 2019 when it's 2025 and go, wow, this, you know, she was reaching out for me then and my, uh, was it Mama? What's, what's the <laughs> Yeah, Mama. Yeah, I'm Mommy. <laughs> and Mama's been withholding that. So, look, it's, it could strain that relationship. I've seen a lot of donor-conceived people uh when the truth's being withheld from that, uh, the trust with their own mama has deteriorated their relationship. And, you know, this is the thing why I like talking about this on the podcast is, is I don't like seeing these stories unfold and psychological issues evaluating as a result of decisions being made with little to no thought. And I think it's very important that, you know, by talking to her, talking out about it, we can help make people make the right decisions for the child because I don't want to see their relationship with their child suffer because, you know, right then, right then they're trying to push them down this direction and then the child finds out that, you know, they were steered down this wrong direction and then they feel betrayed as well. And, you know, these right, stories right. do... If you're not open and honest, then you're going to have those problems to some extent. And, you know, in order to have a good relationship with your kids, I think especially if you're in, you know, if, especially if you've got a, a donor kid shutting down information or, or lying to the kids outright or being so insistent, you know, about keeping information from the kids is, you know, I think a strategy to have that backfire on you. And I think having more open and honest relationships all around is only positive for everybody. Yeah. It's, you know, hopefully this, this part of the, part of the story has another twist to it in a more positive uh, ray of light. So fingers crossed in that regard. I'm going to go back to the canisters. Go back you know, to the canisters. Yeah. <laughs> There's one question I really wanted to ask. Uh, I should have asked about then while we are still on topic, but let's go back to the science. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, vial, the vial size, you know, you got given two straws each time. How, how, much, yes. was, how much was in that vial? Okay. Okay, so this is the part that actually would be a little intimidating if you were going to try this at home. And I want to say this with the caveat that I don't remember. Every month, sometimes there would be an ICI vial, which is inner cervical insemination. Sometimes there would be an IUI vial. And they were both the same price, and we bought whatever was available because you can use both to do an ICI at home. But you cannot put semen into your uterus. It will hurt. It will cramp. It will be potentially fatal even. Mm. So whatever vial I ordered, if I ordered the IUI vial, it would come having been sort of centrifuged the semen out of it. And what you get at home then is like half of a chapstick cap 
full of liquid. It's not much. And you go to your local pharmacy and you ask for one of those vials without a needle, just a little syringe. The smallest one is best. If they give you the five milliliters, you feel like you're just sucking it up and it's just this drop. <laughs> and it's a little scary that you're losing it because you're paying so much for this in the first place, right? And you're so looking forward to getting pregnant and having a baby. And this, there's a lot of hopes and dreams in that tiny drop. You don't want to lose any of it. And so it really was a little bit intimidating. If you get the small vial, at least it fills up the small vial. And all you do is you take it out of the giant helium tank. You have to put on your winter gloves because it's in liquid nitrogen and it smokes when you open it, just like all the science movies. And you put on your gloves, you take it out, you just set it on the countertop for 15 minutes, I think, and then you warm it up to body temperature in your hand. And then what I would do was I would put it in a Dixie cup, like a little bathroom paper cup, and suck it up with the vial. You have to get all the air out of it. You don't want to put air inside your body in any way. But after that process of realizing, like, this is a little bit of liquid and it's really hard to work with, like, you're just, it's basically like half of a chapstick cap full of melted ice cream is basically what you're working with. <laughs> and you just want to give them the best chance possible. So you're making up the science rules. You're like, I am going to be up on a pillow. I'm going to be upside down. I'm not losing a drop of this. <laughs> We're going to give ourselves the best chance we can. And, and then how it works is if you're using an ovulation test kit at home, typically you will surge with this hormone that it tests for in the morning. And I think that is 12 to 48 hours before you actually ovulate. Yeah, the and, then that, and then that egg will last 24 hours until it's dead. So you've got this sort of window and previously frozen sperm will only last about 24 hours just because we freeze things and they're just not the same when we thaw them. And, and you know, right. like strawberries. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, nothing, nothing. I, I can't figure anything in life that I've tried that's better frozen than it was unfrozen unless it's ice cream. <laughs> exactly. And when I tell this, I tell people, I'm like, it's kind of like strawberries. Like you thought it, it's just not the same as a fresh strawberry. I know. Um, it is amazing that it still does work, but in the same way, you know, I do have my concerns about, you know, obviously being frozen because you can see just from the genetic um, science point of view that nothing is good is frozen that it is. And the oldest lady is only 40 years old from IVF as well. So, I mean, we've done a little science experiment at home with your, you know, your, your liquid nitrogen, but I mean, it is essentially a, a life experiment as well. And also, you touched on the they removed the semen from it. I right. Think, I think so they've been in the centrifuge. Like they're not only previously frozen, but they're dizzy. <laughs> yeah, and they lose a lot of motility from that as well. Mm -hmm. So you know, you're obviously getting spurn that you know obviously if you're dizzy and you have to run somewhere you might hit a few walls and bounce off before you get to where you want to go if you don't fall over in the process of trying to get there um, and that's how you picture it in your head you're just like good luck little guys 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should spin around as well to like go, we're yeah. all together. <laughs> right. And well, and you know how they talk about it back then I knew a lot more about it, but it's like a, a uterus is like a five hour trip. Yeah. So if you can imagine getting that dizzy and just go rogling on a five hour run, <laughs> you're really asking, you're asking a lot of them and thank God there are a hundred million of them, but it, it is a little intimidating to do at home. It, mm. it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be that scientific. It shouldn't feel like, oh gosh, we need these doctors for tens of thousands of dollars to do it for us. But at the same time, when you're doing it for the first time, you're kind of thinking, gosh, they're letting us do this. Should we be doing this? And you're just trying to do the best you can, um, you know, and and luckily it works. No, you got there. You got what you you came for. And yeah, she's a lovely young lady now. So it does work. Okay, so look, I think we'll stop talking about science and, and nitrogen now, although it is tempting. We could do a whole podcast about it looked on this this paper of picking your um, cheap sperm donor. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously being cheap, it probably comes with average height, but I mean uh, a lot of these children are more than average height. So uh, look, I'm one of, I guess, the runts of my family as as well. So, um, you know, I'm 5'10", but, uh, you know, a lot of donor children that I've helped contribute to, they are above average height. And this is sort of a similar story to you know, how you've, you came across and obviously you observed Alice growing up before you actually met Aaron. She's quite tall, is she? She is, and that certainly didn't come from me. I'm very average, if that, and I'm the tallest, biggest person in my family. And all we knew about the donor was that he was also average for men. He was 5'9", and... You know, we had this kiddo who came out tiny because I'm tiny. I'm not going to grow a huge baby. And But then like at the two-month appointment, it was like 95th percentile for length. And four and six and eight and 12 months later, this kid was still like 98th percentile for length. And at two years old and five years old. And then my second daughter, who also came from a very average mama, (laughs) short people family, was always in the 90-something percentile for length. And, I mean, that's what's funny about it is the donor, you know, who is anonymous, who never thinks he's going to have anything to do with the kids, is never going to see the kids, is never going to know the kids, has that blindness. But if you're raising those kids, you really start to get to know the donor's family as well as the donor. Because I have said since day one, I was like, you know what? I think this guy is probably the shortest person in his family. And when we found him and he said, do you have any questions for me? I, I said right away, I was like, I think I know the answer to this. <laughs> but are you the shortest person in your family? And he was like, yep, absolutely. A good point that we touched on and we brought up today. It's a unique point because, um, you know, women these days who go out and pick an online donor, you know, they, you know it's easy to ask, hey, what's your height? But also the surrounding height um, of uh, other family members as well is a question that could be um, asked if, if height is something that is concern um, or an, um, a trait that a particular person is looking for. Because, I mean, he might be, um, Aaron could have been the, the tallest and everyone else could have been shorter as well and you could have had little dwarves and gone, hey, Aaron, are you the tallest? So it could you know, work on a different front as well. So, no, I think it's fascinating genetics. Um, it doesn't just because... Uh, 
you particularly didn't get that tall doesn't mean that those genes still aren't in there from you know um, other um, ancestry uh, background uh, links passed down and um, maybe Aaron didn't drink as much milk and get his bones as strong or <laughs> didn't eat enough chicken with the hormones I don't know like, but but yeah look it's it is fascinating these little little aspects that you know that we see and observe, you know, along the way as, as the children get older and, and they start to link up with other half-siblings with other um, similar traits as well. You've met a few of these half-siblings now and, and, and Aaron. How did you find those traits? They, they, weren't, they didn't grow up together, so they've all, you know, they've gone down their own development paths of becoming who they are. But do you definitely, would you say there's genetic traits passed down built in with them that you've noticed in the personalities uh characteristics or habits that they do is is there anything like that you've picked up oh absolutely and i've been looking for a decade because i have these two Aaron, i call them Aaron babies all the Aaron babies i have these two with different moms so i certainly knew my ex's whole family and her habits you know and mine so i had been looking at the differences and the similarities in my girls and bringing 3 4 5 6 more kids into it just amplifies that they all you know they all come to the table with their own personalities i have a very quiet eldest child who's very responsible. And I have a very gregarious, hammy, life of the party youngest child. And I think that's like any family, right? You have kids that are genetically full siblings and you're gonna get different kids. (laughs) Gonna get really different personalities. But what they have in common is they're both incredibly verbally gifted. Words, 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 all the time. Words are their thing. But how it plays out really plays out with their own unique personalities or with the families that they grew up in. All of these kids are really literary. You know, for example. Uh, But my youngest was talking at like seven months old, telling us about her past life in, in Warsaw. And, you know, my eldest didn't speak at all. She just wanted to read. And she loves puns and jokes and sarcasm and wordplay. So it plays out in different ways. One that I think is crazy is two of the kids hold a pencil in a way that I, you've never seen anyone else hold a pencil in your life. Are they left-handed? N- no, my youngest is left-handed, <laughs> but they, they do a thing. And one of the girls had had some health problems. And so she'd been to occupational therapy and they were telling her, we've never seen anyone hold a pencil like that. And then when she met Maddie, the, the 21-year-old sister, Maddie also holds a pencil like this. No, I'm watching her hold the pencil. And it's bizarre. <laughs> you have to see it. I don't even think I can do it. It's halfway up the pencil. It's like in between fingers that you'd never put a pencil there. <laughs> and that's just naturally what they've decided to do. And uh, they're the only ones on the planet that do it. Yeah, I'm left-handed and I get told that when I write, it's messed up. Like, you know, what are you doing holding it backwards like that? They but, they all have the world's worst handwriting. <laughs> well, that's maybe, that's maybe why Aaron got cheap, put in the cheap sperm section. <laughs> they should do the, yeah, these tests up when front. He <laughs> when, he filled out, when he filled out the forms, and like, oh, no, his handwriting's not good. Who put him in the cheap section? Nah. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, artistic. Um, 
<laughs> I've seen videos of Aaron. He's very well spoken and he does seem like a lovely guy. So I'm not having to dig at you, Aaron. So, <laughs> yeah, look, we're, we're all not perfect. Look, so yeah, so you've, you've contact, you made contact with everyone on this um, DNA site, Bryce and, and, and Aaron and, and all that. How did the first meetup happen? You know, how you know where was the steps from there? How did this all unfold? And you know, obviously, this is an exciting time. Yet uh, there's a lot of probably angst, and uh, you know, you're questioning these decisions and stuff like that. I guess before you you know jump into the deep end and take plunge. Uh, so yeah, how did all that go? I think I questioned it a lot more than everyone else in this story because I'm the mom with the minor child. So I'm wondering if this is good for her, if this is something we should do, if this is something we should do right now, or you know, maybe save for later on. So when we got the DNA results back, if we'd done it at Christmas, this was probably February, and we all made contact. Aaron had written this like 16 page, single spaced, lengthy life history a month before that he'd given to Bryce and Bryce had knew Maddie and had passed on to Maddie and they had given Aaron back their life stories. And so when we came on the site in February, Aaron did the same for Alice and Alice wrote him back all about herself. We all became Facebook friends and we did a little bit of messaging. I think I talked to Aaron the most. I certainly felt like I knew him best because I, had his profile memorized from 10 years ago, you know, like I'm looking at all those traits, probably had more questions for him than my daughter did. And so we all messaged a little bit and I talked with him a couple times on the phone, but it wasn't that we'd had this, you know, really in-depth relationship. And the two elder kids were both back East And they decided since they were college age that they would be really interested in meeting Aaron and could they come out this summer after the semester was over. And Aaron welcomed that completely, never thought he would ever get to meet them. And that's when he planned his meet my kids party. And we were, we're just a next state over. We're a five hour drive up so we could be there at lunch it didn't seem far to us. Um, and so we decided, you know, we would all come at the same time. We would get to meet these kids too. And we would get to meet Aaron. So there was more hesitation on my part because I wanted to make sure that my kiddo, who was 12, you know, was, was in a place where this would be a sort of fun and healthy experience for her. And I tried to look it up on the internet. There's not a lot out there, actually. It's, it's mostly like adult kids who are adoptees that are going out to find their biological parents. And the parent isn't usually involved at all. And that was sort of the assumption I had in my head. If these kids would ever find siblings or would ever find a donor, if, and that's a huge if, I didn't think I would be involved in it, let alone facilitating it. Uh, So I actually felt really lucky, even though I never found out like a definitive answer. This is good for kids. This is when this is good for kids. Um, I really just had to look at my individual kid and say, I think she's going to be totally cool with this. This is fine. Now, now now as an expert that's walked this path and seen this unfold, would you say this is good for kids? You know, is this an endorsement like, you know, people thinking about holding back? 
I think this is mostly an endorsement. I think that if you have a seven-year-old who doesn't understand this is daddy and why isn't he coming to my play this weekend and next weekend or the next weekend and why isn't he there for me? Maybe you're not ready and maybe your kid's not ready. But we have only had a positive experience. My kids knew from day one, growing up with two moms, that they had a sperm donor and that you need, you know, a genetic material from a man, you know, at the very least to make a baby and that this has to do with your eye color and your hair color and, you know, the countries his family's from. My kids had a lot of lead up to this. And my kids certainly, especially having been abandoned by a parent, my kid was not a, the 12-year-old who's going to run up with pigtails and be like, Daddy, why, why don't you love me right away? Why aren't you acting like my daddy? I knew that she wasn't going to be confused about that or feel rejected because it wasn't insta-family. Mm. Um, you know, I think you definitely want your kid to be in a place where this is something that they want, that they're interested in, that you're not dragging them to, but also that they understand that this is, you know, it's a genetic relationship. It can be a close one. It doesn't have to be. Like you're not obligated then to like this person <laughs> and to spend time with them. And if they don't spend time with you, are you going to be disappointed? Like there are a lot of factors that I think are probably kid and age specific here. But overall, it's, it's been a great experience for us. It's been really positive. You've come across roughly 10 siblings that you know of at the moment. I'm gathering that you, you haven't met all those 10. We no. haven't met all those 10. We've, Aaron's met four. And I, I've met the most of them because I've met my youngest daughter. Yeah. So I've met five of the 10. So, yeah, you're, win you're winning. <laughs> I win, Yeah. <laughs> Although it would, it would in this instance, it would be nice that everyone equaled up in that. Yeah, way. yeah. There's, there's ten. Uh, they've obviously been on the donor sibling registry, so the the parents must know that there is some sort of acknowledgement out there. But some of these children or their parents aren't aren't ready yet for the meet, or is it just a logistic issue with being so far away across America? Or I mean, I'm presuming all these kids are in the USA. We, we've had a few, right, we've only found kids from America right now. And I don't know as far as like branches of the sperm bank where it goes, if there are kids other, other places. But we've had, we've had a few different sort of relationships. There is a kiddo who is just now becoming an adult who is st starting to say that they might want to have contact with Aaron. There are some kiddos that are very, very young whose parents ha aren't sharing everything on Facebook with them. And, and we don't know to what extent they know there's a donor or they know the donor is known or they know that we're all together or they know that there are all these siblings. We're not sure. There are some parents that have minor kids that seem very open to that, that if we could get to them logistically on the other side of the country, they'd be overjoyed to meet. So we've had a little bit of everything. And I think that it has to do with the, you know, the parents and just the age of the kids and, and whether they feel those kids are ready. Logistically, uh, you and Aaron on the map of America were situated quite close. And I think you even said you could have been walking past him in the shopping centre. 
and stuff like well, that? Well, I mean, it's, it's close for America and Australia. Um, we were, we're five hours away down in Oregon. So we're in the next state over just down the highway. And I'd been to Seattle a, a couple of times for business when I had the girls and, and he actually was in a band with some people down in our town in Oregon. So for a while there, he was coming down every weekend while the girls were growing up. And it's just sort of those coincidences that you, that you really wonder, like, how many times have I walked by this guy and not known? Look, I mean, I gave you a lovely introduction about, you know, the fairy tale and love story yeah. that unfolded. And so people listening today, we've made them, we've made them earn it and, and listen, listen, to, listen up to them now as we discussed all these other key points. It's a unique story, uh, a story that isn't widely shared if it, if it has happened out there. Uh, I think personally it's a lovely story. I mean, love comes in unexpected ways and sometimes that's the most special part about it. So you've obviously, you've met Aaron, yeah, you met the other siblings, uh, obviously it takes two to reciprocate, would have been a navigational minefield when these feelings started developing, I guess, on both sides of the party. I mean, I guess you and Aaron probably reflected back, back on it now and, and spoke about how, how, you, how you decided to come to this decision. What was going through your mind when all this started to, these feelings started to come across like that or potentially there could have been a relationship forming. Yeah, if you want to touch on that, it's, it's a lovely insight for people out there. Yeah. So Aaron and I had a long lead up before we even met where we were talking and getting to know each other and where I was sort of coming back and forth to him, either on Messenger or on the phone. And we were getting to know each other quite a bit more than he was getting to know my 12-year-old because I was this intermediary a little bit. And I was dating a man. I'd been with a man for the past four years, I think. It was a fairly long-term relationship. And we were talking about moving in together. And Aaron made a couple of comments along the way before we even met. Because this man shared Aaron's name and middle name. (laughs) And we thought that was really funny, right? Um, And Aaron sort of said, you know, I think there's been a mix-up at the Bureau of Boyfriends. You're with the wrong Aaron David. Um, (laughs) And I did that and I was like, hey, you know, haha, but we're, we're thinking of moving in together. It's pretty serious. And, and he let it go. And, you know, because we had given up our home, we were moving to be with this, this man that I was with. We're in this really in-between space when we came out here to Seattle to meet him. And that relationship was ending at that time. And he said to us, we all spent... The, the Meet My Kids party was like a two-week extravaganza. <laughs> and we went, to, we went to see all the scenes of Twin Peaks out here in Washington, which is a show that we found out that every kid loved and binged on. And we went down to Oregon, and we went to this arts festival that Aaron had been going to in my town for years, every year, that we'd also been to. And we really spent all this time together sort of as a family because it's really easy to fall into those roles where I've got the car, I'm driving the family, he's, you know, the navigator and I've got three kids across the back seat now, you know, and I'm the one who's going, okay, are you okay? Do you have everything? What do you need? And we really fell into this sort of familial role right away. But I sort of still said to him, you know, I'm, I'm in a relationship, number one. And number two, I was thinking about it much more than he was as something that is my kid's relationship, not mine. 
And where, whereas we had already had kids first, and that was a little bit backwards of getting to know him after I sort of been looking at him for a decade and his mannerisms, it was a little backwards in our relationship too that I was thinking about the breakup before I wanted to commit to even going on a date with him mm. because I knew you don't, you don't go through this when you're just saying yes to coffee with someone, you don't have to trust them. But before I was willing to date him, I really had to have a very good sense that we were going to break up well because we've already got a kid together. We already have to, we don't have to co-parent. He's not, you know, jumped in obviously and is parenting a 12 year old. You can't do that, but he does have to have a relationship with these kids and with my other kid, you know, maybe for the next 30, 40 years until he dies. So I did not want to create drama in those relationships. I did not want to be a part of it in any sort of way where, you know, mommy comes in and takes over and, and screws this up for you. So I was really hesitant and I put him off and, and put him off. But we really did just sort of feel very comfortable with each other from the get-go, all of us. Just got along swimmingly. And at the end of that vacation, Aaron said, you know, we have a um, sublet in my building. So why don't you guys just stay here and figure it out and um, decide what you want to do next. And we did that. You know, we moved in and we stayed. And... You know, we went on, I think one of the first dates we went on, we walked around at night, we left all the kids and uh, our kids, you know, all three of our kids who aren't my kids. And we walked around the town and, and I remember telling him about the kids. So it's a really backwards dating experience, but, you know, in some way we already had a lot in common. You're picking out a donor who's a master's of lit, you're picking out someone who's academic, who's thoughtful, who's literary, who's all the things that, you know, my partner already is and all the things I already value. So I feel like he had a running start <laughs> a little bit, you know, I'm spending all this time with him. I'm going to spend all this time with him. I'm enamored with finding out about his life already. So, you know, I, I, I don't believe all the people who think this is faded or that I'm only with him because he's the father of my children and that that's just some sort of biological, you know, need I have or, or urge I had, but I definitely think it gave him a running start. And I think we had a lot in common from the get go for a reason because I picked him. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't want to regret your decision back then, is it? Do you? <laughs> that you picked the wrong cheap term guy. <laughs> right. God, we met, yeah, if we met and he was totally insane, you know, I mean, a lot of women are not with the father of their children. No. I don't think that's what keeps you with someone. But I spent a lot of time, you know, when we first met, there was just sort of this like, oh, God, phew, all of this hard, awkward part is over. And we just hugged and we hugged for like three minutes. <laughs> and we just very much fell into that. Um, it was very easy to get along with him. It was very easy to talk to him. Um, and it felt very, very much familiar to, to be with him. And I had to, I had, it took me a few months even to get to know him as a person. I didn't, you know, I, I really, I really wanted to be like, you know what? No, I got to know him. This is, this is not that oversimplified. 
where I see my kids in him and therefore I love him. I, I see him as a person and we've gotten to know each other and, you know, it's turned out that we have a lot in common on our own and, and want to be together on our own. So it's been a really crazy journey. It's been a journey that I did try to Google and I, I can't find many other people that this has happened to, certainly not with an anonymous sperm donor, but it's been, everybody's been really supportive and it's been really positive. Yeah, I 100% support you as well. And I, I, I say our community is totally behind how this has played out for you. It's a yeah, very, very unique story. And Aaron, obviously he's come in, he's in a relationship with you now, but I mean, Alice isn't recognise him as the traditional father per se. Um, is that, is that uh, an issue for him that he's still navigating or he's fit into quite well? Or, you know, has he come to you and said, hey, can I have a say in this? Or, you know, sort of an input on where boundaries are on all this? I mean, obviously there might be people that follow the this pathway in the future and It'd be interesting for them to see how you have navigated this to make it all run as smoothly as, as it has been because, I mean, it does sound like things are going really well since things have kicked off. So you've got a little magic to put out there for uh, other people potentially? No, because there's no magic. What I think this really has worked out that well for us and I think a lot of it has to do with, number one, Aaron has never had a partner or kids in a traditional way. I don't think he would know how to jump in and try to parent if he tried. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and number two, he really is one of the most patient, soft-spoken, live and let live people I've ever met. And I think both of those things have really helped. I don't think that Aaron wants to parent. I don't think that he wants to jump in and, and start telling you know, this 12 year old, what to do. And I think if he tried, it would go South. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, I think we all kind of recognized even in the seventies, like this Brady bunch scenario where we're all just going to be a family now and you're never going to mention your old mom or dad ever again. This is now daddy. I even remember as a kid going, this is not healthy. (laughs) We shouldn't want this for those kids. And so we're doing the 2019 version of it. It's not healthy to just pretend, you know, like one day there's no daddy, one day this is daddy, and he's going to give you a lecture. I don't think that would work out if, if we tried that. But we have a, yeah, we have a much more organic sort of relationship where I see, you know, who he is to Maddie, who lives here with us now in the building, is really different than his relationship with Alice. And I think that all of them, are, are going to have really different relationships with Aaron. And I think that it really speaks to him as a person that he's very willing to meet each kid where they are. Maddie's a young adult now. She's, her parents were, um, I'm presuming, the same sex relationship. I'm not sure where they're originally from or where she grew up in. How are her parents in her decision to come and, and live with Aaron? I think that her parents are a little bit more hesitant and they're completely supportive, but they're very far away. And they certainly didn't want to lose her to 2000 miles, Uh, but she's 21. And I think that they 
know that that's going to happen, <laughs> whether Erin is involved in that or not. Maddie grew up in the Deep South. She grew up in Virginia, and it's a very conservative culture. She had these two gay moms, so she has a different perspective. But when she came out here, and we're, you know, left coast sort of California progressive, um, you know, it's a, it's a building with a lot of art, and it's a city with a lot of art, and a lot of people who think like she thinks, I think it was really eye-opening for her you know, to get a sense of, oh my God, there's this whole other side of me and maybe this is where that comes from. And this is a really intriguing place and people and I get along with them and maybe this is why. And being 21, being at a place in her life where she wasn't really sure you know, what she wanted to study and what she wants to do after school, she made the decision to come out here and sort of explore this half of who she is while she still could. Her parents have been incredibly supportive, but I think at the same time, you know, every parent probably goes through this, right? When, when the kid is 18 to 25, it's their job to grow apart from you. <laughs> it's their job to, to find a way to leave you in some way. So I think that they have that sense of loss that they certainly didn't want her to go so far. Yeah, I, th I think it's something that uh, it does happen, you know, obviously, uh, children do grow up and they break away from the nest. Uh, it could be easy for them to be um, bitter and see that as a reason rather than just the natural progression of becoming an adult and that's how not necessarily finding a, a donor biological father but you might find a partner that goes away for work and then you move over from another part of the Right, um, exactly, anyway, so. exactly. And she found, yeah, I think she found a lot of those things in a donor is that, wow, here's this person who thinks like I do and, and lives like I do in a place like I want to live. I'm going to go try that out. I mean, I've never spoken to Bryce. I've only seen some videos of him and, and a few articles and stuff as well. But I mean, yeah. he's seen, as you said, you know, the one that spoke to everyone and coordinated everyone and, and all that. He seems like a very intelligent young man goes out and, and is a go-getter. Uh, I didn't pick up, though, on his family upbringing. He did seem like he was missing a father figure uh, that as much. Uh, what um, traditional family did he um, grow up in before reaching out? So, and his? Bryce also grew up with two moms. Yeah. And he was in New York on the East Coast. Uh, what what we've found so far is that almost everybody has lesbian moms. There is one child who has a single mom. And so that's part of the speculation, too, is, you know, maybe there are other kids that are growing up in households with a mom and a dad, and maybe they're not coming on the site or looking yet because maybe their parents haven't told them yet. They may not very much know that they're donor conceived at all. Uh, right, right. All these lesbian moms, you know, had to tell their kids something along the way. Yeah, well, that is a very interesting point that you made. In my community, it's predominantly um, same-sex um, ladies and uh, a lot of single um, mothers. And I did my own research and investigations into, uh, you know, why aren't we attracting that heterosexual um, market? And, yeah, a lot of these men prefer not to know who the donor is and wants to raise the child as um, biologically, uh, in the, you know, the kid to believe that, that, you know, they're biologically connected and a lot of them don't get passed on this information. I mean, even, you know, they say these days in Australia now our laws are abolished. The clinic doesn't have 
these children's phone numbers when they turned 18 to say, hey, you're a donor-conceived um, person, they sort of still got to try and get into last contact, which is normally parents anyway. So parents can still try and withhold this information and not pass it on. And also now in Australia, we're getting a lot of people that are using donor sperm through a clinic and then just telling the clinic they've miscarried because then ha- having the birth through that, so they're never on a register. So, I mean, there is all these uh, loopholes in the system that people are trying to take. And it, it is a fascinating point that you made that so far all the children that have been connected have been from all same-sex parents and, and, and a single mother. There's not one heterosexual couple child come out yet so it's a fascinating point and there's still a lot lot of work to go in on this side of the sperm donation world to try and break down the stigma and say to these you know parents that have raised these children that hey it's okay you know it's okay to we all have uh, our own little issues or genetic conditions in, in some small manner and sometimes infertility is just something that happens and it's quite common, unfortunately. So, But we, we need to try and encourage these people to accept that and come forth and, you know, there's still a lot of work to do. So it's been a lovely chat with you today, Jessica. Really commendable that you've come out and not, not just you, um, Aaron, and all the other um, siblings out there and, and your daughter to, you know, allow for you to speak to our community today. And, you know, it's a fascinating story. I think, you know, a lot of people would have learnt a lot from our conversations and that's sort of what it's about, you know. Um, I love meeting and speaking to people like yourself all across the world that are not afraid to own it and speak up and, and be a pioneer and inspire other people, you know. Inspiring people is such a powerful thing and you should be really proud of your own little family unit and i mean i know you are because I've, <laughs> I've, I've i've seen it all but you know that's just really appreciative um of your time today so for uh more information about jessica and her story she'll provide some uh, links and whatever contact information she feels um, comfortable on on the podcast information guide um which you'll find the information episode list and and as jessica and her family starts to go down different paths or or new projects transpire we'll we'll update that website and add to it as she wishes thank you for very much for your time today jessica and we'll stay in touch over time it's fascinating story we'd love to see you know how things go in in the future with unearthing more uh, half siblings that come forward i mean it's not the end of the story it's a it's an ongoing story and um yeah it's been a real pleasure Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure getting to talk to this audience too. I appreciate it. Yeah, if anyone else would like to be a special guest on Spend the Nation World podcast with their, you know, your own unique story. I mean, we've all got some fascinating stories out there. Uh, there's so many angles to cover. Uh, we we want to hear from you. It's okay to speak up. It's a, it's a non-biased uh, podcast here. We we don't target anyone. As anyone's heard all the episodes so far that we've put out there i haven't <laughs> victimized anyone but yeah they've been feel good stories so look come forward reach out share story another episode wrapped thank you very much and we'll see you next week